now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Breaking news out of London. A deadly terror attack overnight. An incident happening at the London Bridge, then nearby at a restaurant in Borough Hall, and also a possible third incident at Vauxhall. Oh, six dead at least, they are saying. The authorities are saying. 30 injured at least. The three attackers also killed. The Metropolitan Police has been responding to incidents in London Bridge and Borough Market areas of London. We're treating this as a terrorist incident. All of a sudden, we just heard really out of nowhere, like four or five really loud successive gunshots. Uh, everybody got down at once and went below their tables and got on the floor. It was mass panic. They, they, they started uh, attacking people on the road. Uh, when they were running towards the people, uh, they were shouting, this is for Allah. The suspects were wearing what looked like explosive vests, but these were later established to be hoaxes. This was an attack on London and the United Kingdom, but it was also an attack on the free world. The global jihad hits London again. Those were all sound bites from uh, over the course of the weekend. Uh, Buck Sexton with you all now here in the Freedom Hunt. Saturday, I saw the initial reports come in. I knew, as I'm sure many of you did as well, right away what we were facing. Uh, the moment that it was clear that this was a vehicle attack on London Bridge, that there were stabbings, that there was gunfire, it was almost certainly jihadists. Uh, and now we have additional information and uh, we find that, or we found out that two of the three attackers have been named. Uh, they are, according to UK police, Karam Shazad Butt, who was a British citizen born in Pakistan, and Rashid Redouan, who has claimed to police to be Moroccan and Libyan. There's a third man that they have in custody for the, oh, sorry, third man who was killed, uh, but they have not yet identified uh, him publicly. So jihad hits again, third time in three months uh, in the UK, uh, and there have been five plots that have been disrupted, that have been con that are considered major and credible. Uh, there is a frustration that many of us feel after these attacks because much of what is talked about and, and much of the uh, responses that are discussed, including by so-called experts, would have very little effect on any of this. Uh, and the, the truth is that for all of our talk about how we will confront this now, we will, uh, we will deal with this, we need stronger intelligence, we need uh, stronger 
cooperation with allies, uh, that's all well and good. We've been doing that, and the attacks haven't stopped. The U.K. has very advanced intelligence services. Uh, they are skilled at what they do. They have uh, a police force that is world-class in London. Uh, they know what they're doing, but they also have thousands of jihadists to sort through and to surveil on a regular basis. Uh, this is really a long-standing problem. If you go back and, and look at what it was like in the United Kingdom 10 years ago, it was basically an open-door policy for jihadists. They had people who were standing in uh, public squares, you know, standing near Piccadilly Circus uh, with, with signs up saying, uh, you know, behead those who insult Islam. This was out in public, and this was defended by the British authorities. This is years ago, but... Within the last 10 years, that was the case. There were people who had come to the U.K. Uh, who were on public benefits, who were on welfare, while those individuals, Islamic, uh, Islamist uh, hate preachers, were talking about overthrowing the British government and installing Sharia, while they were on public benefits, by the way. So Britain has come a long way. Now they do deport people for that kind of activity who are non-citizens. But when I look at what's being talked about now is the response, and Theresa May gave a good speech. The prime minister of the U.K. gave a good speech, but there's not much more for her to do than that right now. Um, there's not much more for many of us to do other than look at this and, and deal with the fact that we are in a multi-generational, really multi-century most likely, ideological war. And it's not going to get solved overnight. It's not going to get solved in the next year. It will require constant vigilance. But the first step is honesty. Honesty about the enemy that we face, what their goals are, how they plan to achieve them. I, I was on Fox over the weekend to talk about this and, and earlier today as well. But also was following the other channels out there with their experts, both real and imagined, on terrorism. And there's the same conversation keeps happening. The, we, we hear the same discussions. And I'll get into the politics surrounding this in a moment just because I think that's also a reflection of what is among the uh, liberal leftist intelligentsia in the West, really a, a death wish for Western civilization. I can't explain why they have it, but they do. I, I can't tell you why they, with their beliefs, uh, betray the very civilization that allows them free expression and free thought, but many of them do. Uh, I, can, I can begin to give you some analysis of it, but I just can't personally fathom ever being uh, so stupid, uh, so careless, and so cowardly. But many of those who go on and, and want to tell us that the real threat is Islamophobia or the real problem is Trump's reaction to this, they are a part of the problem that we face here, which is that we no longer seem to have a, a unified belief in the, the greatness of Western civilization, uh, which is built on Judeo-Christian values. There are many people that deny that or that want to tear that down that no longer have that belief and i'm not talking about just jihadists i'm i'm speaking of journalists i'm talking about a lot of those 
uh, on the left, professors, lawyers, you, know, you name it, who will go out and, and make every excuse for not treating this as a continuous guerrilla warfare against our society and our way of life. They will liken it to normal violence. They will liken it to uh, drug cartels or shootings in Chicago or uh, a workplace workplace violence. The Obama administration even did that with an actual jihadist attack, right? They're, they they try to normalize this. They say that this is just what our expectation should be. Meanwhile, there are large portions of the world in which no terrorist attacks like this take place. There are, in fact, many billions of people who do not ever engage in any active jihad. You see, the precondition for all of this, we can talk about root causes, we can talk about where uh, jihadism is more likely to thrive, but the precondition is a belief in Islam. And then you add layers onto that. But we understand that this does come from within the Islamic faith, the Islamic tradition, and it is different from other violence. I saw people uh, making, uh, on social media, for example, uh, making the case that you know, Trump's reaction to this versus his reaction to the uh, stabbings in Portland. Keep in mind that the people who were who were killed in, in Portland were actually stepping in to defend an African-American woman and a uh, African-American Muslim American woman uh, from a maniac. But there's no big constituency in favor of that Portland maniac. There aren't uh, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people around the world who whether openly or not, somewhat support what he did. Oh, there, there's universal disgust, and everyone that you walk around, and if you ask someone on the street, what do you think should happen to that guy who stabbed those people in Portland? They would say, well, he's clearly a homicidal maniac and should be locked away for all of his days. Some would say even worse. I think under, under Oregon state law, he could, be, he could face the death penalty for what he did. It's different the violence we see in Great Britain. And we need to understand that. We shouldn't shy away from that discussion. It's different because it is an attack on our way of life. And I know that's supposed to be now uh, a, a simple, that's supposed to be a simplistic statement. You see, if you listen to the elite media, they'll tell you, well, they don't hate us for our freedom. That is nonsense. They do. Maybe a better way of saying it is they actually hate freedom. They hate choice. They hate liberty. Uh, they would prefer that everyone lives under a totalitarian theocracy, a caliphate. And as insane as that belief is to us, it is very real to them, and they act on it. And they're not alone. There are whole nation-states that are, in one way or another, devoted to some form of this ideology. There are many millions of individuals around the world within the Islamic faith who at least agree that Sharia should be the only law above any man-made law, including in the United Kingdom. But here we are. We're being told maybe they should change the way uh, information is shared online. Maybe Internet providers have a bigger role to play here through censorship. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to take this threat more seriously with police. Uh, what are you supposed to do in a society of laws— where people have the freedom to say stupid and offensive things, uh, how do you differentiate between an Islamist who says that he hopes the U.S. is engaged in, or, or Great Britain, and well, together, we're allies in this fight, right? Hopes that we are bogged down in some endless quagmire in the Middle East and 
that our fight against ISIS goes nowhere. Are we going to make that illegal? There are plenty of Islamists around who would say that. I'm not saying they're not disgusting, but we're going to now start throwing people in prison for that? That's an interesting approach fraught with its own perils. But just because you know that somebody says that, I I should note, or, or rather, once you know somebody says that, what are you to do? I see that one of these individuals, back to the London attacks, uh, Karam Butt, was known to the authorities. And he even appeared in a Channel 4 documentary called The Jihadis Next Door. He had already been thrown out of a, a mosque for saying crazy radical stuff. And there are reports that he even tried to radicalize kids in his local park. What crime are we going to lock him away for and how long? I know that's a question that very few people seem to want to ask now. You know, we, we can we can bomb ISIS more, but I, I will be the one to tell you that bombing ISIS would not have stopped. Bombing ISIS doesn't stop this guy. This uh, Karam Butt goes on his psychopathic jihadi spree, whether ISIS loses Raqqa or not. I'm not saying don't bomb ISIS more. Fine. You know, whatever we can do to defeat them, we should do. But that doesn't stop this. The answer is you're deeply unsatisfying here. After this happens, there tend to be two, generally speaking, tend to be two approaches. On the left, you have just head in this, you know, just just, just stick your head somewhere else. Pretend that it, it's not really happening. Um, try to... Explain it away. Focus on Islamophobia. Say that this is an aberrant event that has nothing to do with Islam, that uh, Donald Trump's tweets are turning Muslims against us. By the way, one of the great bigotries that seems to be acceptable on the left is that uh, members of the Islamic faith are, are, are one insult away from becoming suicide bombers. Leftists indicate this all the time with what they say. You know, we're going to lose the moderate Muslims. They're, they're going to turn to jihad or they're going to turn into Islamists. Really? Denouncing jihadism is going to turn normal, everyday folks into jihadists? That's a, that's a terrible thing to say. But they, they throw that around with impunity, right? Because it serves their short-term political purpose. They act like Trump is, Trump is the problem here. Terrorists slaughter a bunch of people on the streets of London, but you know Trump's response is what they should focus on, they think. But I will tell you, on the right... A lot of people who know very little about Islamic history or counterterrorism or how any of this works, they go on TV, they go on radio, they say, you know, we need to we need to do more. And I understand that sentiment, but just saying we need to do more, unfortunately, is not enough because there are very few things that you can realistically do to stop this kind of terrorism. It falls into the hands of everyday citizens. That's the reality. It falls into the hands of police officers on the beat nearby who fortunately got there quickly and took these psychopaths out. But it, it, it is at this level, someone's going to drive a vehicle and take knives and stab people. It does come down to passersby who will throw beer bottles, who will slam doors, who will do whatever they have to do to protect people on the street. Falls into the hands of you, me, anyone who's around this kind of an incident because The government's not going to get this done for you. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The government's not going to win this battle. It's much bigger than that. Got to hit a break. We'll be right back. This bloodshed must end. This bloodshed 
will end. As President, I will do what is necessary to prevent this threat from spreading to our shores and work every single day to protect the safety and security of our country, our communities, and our people. It was amazing how quickly the conversation in this country uh, swerved from what was going on in the UK uh, to Trump and his travel ban, um, which I, I want to get into in a few minutes. But but first, just on the notion of this ending, or that we're gonna we're gonna do something now that's gonna change this. If we only had better intelligence or better laws, uh, as long as there are individuals who uh, are susceptible to jihadist radicalization, you're gonna have th- you're gonna have attacks like this. Th- there's no way around that. Um, and how you create a a country or a society uh, where that's not the case is something that no one's really no one's really come up with yet. I mean, what do what do you do? Uh, some percentage of individuals from within the Muslim world radicalize. It's very small, but it's enough that we have to spend an enormous amount of resources uh, trying to stop that threat. Uh, when you look at uh, the surveillance resources, for example, this is what's reported in the United Kingdom on this. And they'll say that there are a few thousand uh, there are a few thousand suspected extremists. Uh, they, by the way, if you looked at their views, and I'm sure if you were able to read up on wh- whatever it is they've said, either publicly or privately, that the police have access to, and then you looked at what's preached in the mainstream in a lot of Muslim countries, you would see there's a lot of similarities. Not all, but a lot. You would see that the connective tissue between uh, Islamism in uh, some individuals in Western countries and Islamism that is commonplace in entire countries of the Muslim world, and that would be that would be enough to give you some concern. That would be reason to take a take a step back and, and wonder what's really going on here. Um, the supremacy of Sharia law, for example, is uncontroversial in Muslim countries, most of them, uh, and. So when somebody in the U.K. is saying that they believe that Sharia law is supreme over the law of the United Kingdom, well, is that that's radical for the U.K.? Is that radical for the Muslim world? That's a that's a question nobody really wants to spend a lot of time thinking about these days, I think, or not that many people, at least, uh, because where do you draw the lines? You have individuals who are on the radar of the security services, a few thousand of them. You can't follow them all all the time. If they don't break the law, you can't lock them up. And you never know when one guy's going to go from appearing in the Jihadis Next Door documentary to becoming an actual jihadist who murders people in the streets. Uh, the, the jihadization phase, and we used to talk about a, a cycle of radicalization at the NYPD, um, and the step from uh, hardline Islamist to jihadist is very hard to detect. Uh, and the, the difference in belief is a matter of degree. It's just they usually believe the same things. It's just one thinks that, well, I believe this, therefore I have to go kill a bunch of people. The other one thinks, I believe this and I have to wait a while and then it will become a reality when the caliphate comes. So it's very hard to parse all this. We'll be right back.
The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. So, earlier today on CNN, you had uh, anchor Chris Cuomo having a little bit of a back and forth with assistant to the president, uh, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, who we've had on the program many times, uh, over the issue of the travel ban. Because President Trump uh, wrote earlier today, the Justice Department, this is on Twitter, the Justice Department should have stayed with the original travel ban, not the watered-down, politically correct version they submitted to South Carolina. Um, And then Trump uh, also in the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attack, tweeted, we need to be smart, vigilant, and tough. We need the courts to give us back our rights. We need the travel ban as an extra level of safety. Um, that So that's the backstory, for those of you listening, to this exchange between CNN anchor Chris Cuomo and uh, Dr. Gorka, who works for the White House. And I just wanted to play some of how this goes for you. It's always been about who it targets, how it targets them, and whether or not that is what will keep us safe. And you guys played games about it and said it's not a ban. I could play you Sean Spicer right now, but you know it's true. And then the president decides to be honest about it this morning. That is spin. You are the purveyor of spin because that was your message, that it wasn't a ban and it was untrue. That's why I'm so, asking you. So I guess I guess President Obama was also a purveyor of spin with that calculation because the executive order is based upon the Obama White House analysis of the seven nations of greatest concern for immigration into America. Well, is he a purveyor of spin, Chris? Well, that's an interesting question. Pause for one it I, is, is First it? of all, you, you would never see an anchor on CNN or any of the networks. Uh, well, during the Obama administration, Obama uh, Obama's... Uh, surrogates on counterterrorism i i don't i don't think they would have been <laughs> i don't think they were ever asked any questions or, or i shouldn't say asking questions I, I don't think they were ever spoken to in in such a sort of undermining uh obviously undermining tone you are a purveyor of spin he says to uh, dr gorka here um on the notion of whether or not this is a ban look part of this is in language right what do we call this i mean a, a temporary uh, a, a temporary pause in immigration from countries identified as having a more likely or having you know a, a greater terrorist threat emanating from within is a tough thing to pack into a lot of uh, a lot of talk over policy right that's i don't know if we could come up with an acronym for it but so we call it a ban um it's not helpful that you have the white house communication staff saying that it, it doesn't matter uh, in fact, you had Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, uh, earlier today addressing that question. Uh, is it a travel ban? Look, I, I don't think the president cares what you call it, whether you call it a ban, whether you call it a restriction. He, he cares that we call it national security and that we take steps to protect the people of this country. Now, she's in a tough spot because the president seems to insist on saying it's a ban. And then uh, but you see, it's a ban is not the same as it's a Muslim ban. And this is where the, the this is where the argument starts to all uh, all the friction comes in, right? This is where the back and forth really should happen, because the media says it's a Muslim ban. It's clearly not a Muslim ban. 
isn't it? And isn't while it? I, I like that you must get away from President Trump and his policy as all. quickly as possible and Not go to the bromide of blame Obama hour. for everything. But if I'll you look at that executive order, hour. I'm sure, I'm sure you would, and eloquently so. However, the facts are not your friend here because that move <laughs> a, with the executive order from remark. the Obama administration was about travel to those countries. It was about who's coming in and out and why. Your order is about Muslims, about targeting oh, oh, Chris, Muslims let's, let's and keeping that. them out and allowing those who are not Muslim a carve-out to come in. All right, so Very pause good. it for one second. You see, they're actually getting to the real issue here which is whether you call it a ban or not is irrelevant because they're just trying to it's the same reason why I call it a ban we're trying to talk about the thing we're trying to speak about this order that Trump put forward um but they've been calling it a muslim ban which it is clearly not for reasons I've articulated before but continue on with the uh, the Gorka Cuomo CNN exchange here let's do let's do a little bit of a 101 let's do a little uh, trivial pursuit uh, what is the most populous Muslim nation in the world, Chris? You tell me. These are your answers. <laughs> Chris Cuomo has no idea what the most populous Muslim nation in the world is. And look, I, it's it's not fair to play Trivial Pursuit on live TV with anchors necessarily, right? I, I You know, I don't want this to become the new game because then every time a conservative goes on MSNBC... You know, the question is going to be, uh, you know, the I don't know what, what, what's what's the capital of Pakistan or something. Right. And if you're talking about Pakistan, should you know that? Yes. But if you're talking about counterterrorism in general, maybe you get a little jammed up on the spot. I don't know. Uh, so I don't like the trivial pursuit thing, but I do think it's fair when you're talking about a Muslim ban to bring up what Dr. Gorka here brings up. And I think it's also noteworthy that if you're covering you know, world events a lot, you should probably know what the largest Muslim-majority country in the world is. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair point. Um, but let's see how this plays. Oh, by the way, but the point here is, Chris Cuomo, I like is, you know, these are your answers. These are your answers. Like, what does that even, I don't even know what that means. But anyway, here's how it goes. Keep going. No, no, you tell me. What is the biggest Muslim nation in the world? No, you tell Massive me. Massive population. I want to give you the oh, you opportunity to lay okay. it out. Go ahead. He wants to give me the opportunity. Assume I know it's nothing. Indonesia. Pretend I know nothing. It's that won't Indonesia. be hard. Right. I will assume you know nothing. What's the largest there you go. Arab nation Gorka in the world? lets him have you it. You tell me. Egypt. Okay? So if this had anything, and I mean anything, to do with race or religion, why would those two nations, the most populous Muslim nation and the most populous Arab nation not be included on the executive order. Explain that logic to me, because this is where your spin fails. This okay, is check, where the- uh, checkmate. Gorka's got him here. Uh, but we see now we're talking about a Muslim ban. The press is all this. Is it a ban? Is it not a ban? The word ban is not really that. That's not what's at issue here. It's is it a Muslim ban? That's where we get into a real debate, a real discussion, and. It's clearly not because it doesn't ban Muslims. Banning some people is not the same as banning all people. And when you're banning some people for a a rationale that has been made public, that we're all aware of, that these are countries. So, by, by the way, I mean, this is not hard to figure out, right? You're talking about a country like, you know, Yemen. Yemen's got some terrorism problems. This This is not to be mean to the Yemeni citizens who are law-abiding, peaceful, and nice. It's just... 
the reality of the country right now. It's got a terrorism problem. The Obama administration identified these as countries. That's why they picked these. I, I also find it fascinating, the argument, and this is just part of the anything that hurts Trump, I will say, mentality, which a lot of people have, including in the press. So, well, why isn't Saudi Arabia part of it? Well, you know, because it's about whether we trust that the government can vet people coming here well enough. It's not just about whether there's any terrorism in that country. If it's about whether there's any terrorism in that country, we would have a problem with people from the U.K. coming here, wouldn't we? Right? But we believe that the U.K. has proper procedures and security procedures in place, and we have greater trust in their ability to know whether someone's a problem before they come here, and we have a good intel sharing and uh, and just, in general, a, a good cooperative relationship with the United Kingdom. We also have a relationship, according to the administration at least, that is reasonably cooperative with the Saudis on this. You see this because Iraq was dropped from the initial travel ban. Remember, travel ban, not a Muslim ban. I, I can handle travel ban. I cannot handle Muslim ban because it's not true. Just fighting over whether it's a ban or not, though, as I said, irrelevant. Uh, although I don't think it's technically a ban either. The president uses the term ban. He's the president. I'm not. Maybe you want to go with him, but you see what I'm saying. But Iraq was able to assure the U.S. that they would change the procedures. But if you want to take it to an even deeper level, which I think is where we should all go right now, because I know you've heard this travel ban, Muslim ban stuff before, whether for me or from a whole lot of other folks talk about it. The whole notion of the ban, one way or the other, has become a fight over a lot of things that have nothing to do uh, with the specifics of whether people have a right to come here or not. Much of this is driven just by animosity and opposition to Donald Trump himself. Much of this is just the result of people trying to latch on to an issue that will allow them to vent their fury at the Trump administration, which they deeply believe, whether we're talking about members of the judiciary or elected representatives on, uh, for, from the Democrat side or people in the media. They think that Trump is a bigot and a racist and an Islamophobe. Um, so this allows them to, and th it is through that prism, by the way, that they view the entire travel ban issue. Uh, but to the American people, what they see with Trump and this uh, this whole executive order is that when he tries to take a step that let's just be real about this affects very few people in the grand scheme of things very very few people in this country are affected by this in any way shape or form very few countries overall in the grand scheme of things are affected by this uh, will it stop all terrorism of course not there are terrorists who grow up in the united states there are terrorists who grow up in the united kingdom we know this um, but if it could Based on what we've seen, based on the tactics of terrorists in the recent past, jihadists in the recent past, if it could stop one attack, is it worth the price we pay for the inconvenient? Remember, on any individual basis, somebody could be allowed in here. So, you know, if somebody's, uh, if someone's saying, oh, you know, my, my relative has to come here, my, my, my you know, grandfather's dying, I need my relative from... Uh, from Somalia to come visit, you know, you can apply and, and you, there can be a waiver given. But the point here being, this is not a, a massive issue, no matter how you look at it, for most Americans, meaning that what it actually does to them is very minimal. But why are there, there are people protesting at the airports? There are people who want to talk about this night after night on the news. Because this has become a proxy for whether you believe that you can do anything 
that affects the Muslim population of the world um, as a counterterrorism measure at all. Right. There are some people in this country who believe that to to look to look specifically within the Islamic faith is wrong in any way, shape or form. And so a ban that affects predominantly Muslim countries is inherently wrong. Even if it's not based on their faith, per se, it is based on the realities of terrorism as a threat from those countries. The left in this country rejects wholesale that there is any connection between is between Islam and. And Islamism and jihadism, it, it, they say it's a perversion, it's a, a bastardized version, it, it, there, there's a, a severing in their mind of these two things, and they are not willing to take even small steps towards lessening the threat to people in this country from jihadists who are non-U.S. citizens. Remember, we're not talking about citizens, we're not talking about Muslim Americans, we're talking about people from other places around the world. Not even willing to take those steps. And that sends a message. There are a, a lot of Americans, I think, see this whole discussion debate playing out. They say to themselves, well, why so much fury from the pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times over this? Why do CNN, MSNBC and others act like this is a great civil rights struggle? It's a, it's a, it would be a temporary measure affecting six countries with waivers, in, with, with waivers possible and, uh, and given out as needed. Uh, but we're supposed to view this as like the great new civil rights struggle of our era or something. It's insane. And by the way, uh, it should be noted that the at least one of the terrorists who got into the UK wasn't vetted well enough. Assuming that he's not from the country, which I, we don't actually know yet. It's not not clear yet. He's, he said that he is of uh, I'm not sure if we know he's UK. But it, it seems likely that one individual was not thoroughly, was not vetted well enough. There have been others who certainly were not vetted well enough. Um, and that's something that we, we have to continue to look at. So uh, I want to hit a quick break here. 844-900-2825. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and much more? Let me know. And we'll be right back. Pardon me, team. Just a quick note. Um, I thought one of one of the, uh, the one of the named attackers in the UK. Um, they have said that he he claims to be of I think Libyan and uh, Moroccan origin, but it's not. I, I believe he is. I need to check on. We're checking on to his status of uh, of citizenship because um, origin might have thrown me off there. But I will I will find out more about that uh, another individual was a citizen but had was an immigrant and had become a citizen right one of the other named ones um, but I'll find out if the second guy uh, was in the same uh, was in the same category so just looking at the two named attackers third one not yet named I got a bunch of calls up here I want to take them uh, Jimmy in North Carolina WPTI what's up Jimmy hey Buck thanks for having me on man uh, thank you everything you do for us appreciate that uh, right here on instead of the uh, sports show that we used to have all right, I'll, all right, I'll take Buck over a sports show too. Thank you. Yeah, all day. Um, with with the uh, with the whole band that the left's trying to play, it's just to me, it's just it's just like a slap in the face that they really don't care about anybody's safety. I have a four year old son, and if anybody tried to hurt him, you know, I'm gonna die for him. And they're just letting 
It's like that movie London Has Fallen. The beast is at the gates, and they're just letting them in. I, I'm trying to think of what the what the answers are, honestly, and it's it's very tough. Uh, it, it's like a counterinsurgency operation where you know you don't want to alienate the broader population because the broader population is both innocent and you need them on your side. But they're, the bad guys fight from within the innocence or, or fight by hiding w- within the innocence. You know what I'm saying? So it becomes yeah. it becomes very it's very tricky. Uh, you know, how, how many people and say, I, well, and I'm, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's all right, sir. I was going to say, I mean, how many terrorist attacks uh, you know, are there overall and how many terrorist attacks are we thwarting? As as uh, raw numbers, I mean, they're not that many, but they have a massive impact on perceptions of security on security resources as they are deployed and uh, you know t- terrorism does shape the way societies have to act and, and think about you know their day-to-day I mean just look at Israel I mean t- terrorism is a mate has a major impact on the day-to-day lives of Israelis yeah. uh, perhaps less so now than in some years past but it's still a, a constant consideration and the jihadists they don't have to pull off an attack every day or every week in order to create a similar sense of siege uh but jimmy thank you for calling in from north carolina i appreciate it uh john in mississippi on wbuv how you doing john i'm doing fine buck i hope you're doing well i I enjoy your show thank you i'd like to make a comment i'd like to make a comment about uh, terrorism and put in a, a larger context with a history that goes back a number of years and we ought not to lose sight of the real problem by focusing on the terrorists who, in my opinion, have simply been instrumentalized by another enemy. It's as though if I if I hated you and I put snakes in your house, it's not the snakes that are the problem, it's me. You should not focus on the snakes and try to make peace with those snakes. You should figure out who the heck put these snakes in my house. But okay, so, so I'm I'm trying to follow your analogy here. In this case, I mean, the, the, are you saying that that they the, pers- the snake handler in this case would be the ideology of Islamism and jihadism. I mean, Theresa May said oh, that. Oh, I, I think oh, there's. Oh. It goes back. It goes back. Think Cold War. Think Soviet Union. Think Red China. Think of how they they use the Korean problem to demoralize the United we States. We got to hit a break. Sexton with America Now. We are cold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are very pleased to be joined by Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. We're going to talk to him about a bunch of issues. Senator, thank you so much. Great to be with you, Buck. Uh, let's talk about the travel ban. The president has referred to it as a ban. There's been some back and forth with members of the administration as to how to talk about it. But I want to know on the substance of it, what are your thoughts, Senator? I think, you know, the defense of your country begins at your borders and that we're foolish not to have more scrutiny on who comes into the country. 
I think Europe, because of allowing mass sort of uncontrolled migration with no time for assimilation, I think they're at risk for what's been going on. But unfortunately, I fear that it's going to go on for a long, long time. And I think one of the ways you can limit it is by having more scrutiny. But the interesting thing is it doesn't have to be completely banning people. So, for example, I had legislation very similar to what Trump has proposed. But also in my legislation, I created access to something called global entry. Most people or a lot of people who travel internationally in the United States can become part of a frequent traveler program. I think really almost every country in the world could become part of that. And once you become a frequent traveler and you've had your background check and you're a legitimate businessman or woman that comes even from Iran or you're a relative of somebody who lives in our country and lives in Iran, uh, your mother-in-law still lives over there, we should be able to get them in global entry. And so it's not a complete ban on people, but what it is is it's extra security and scrutiny over who does travel here. We're expecting to hear from former FBI Director uh, James Comey later on this week. Uh, Not clear yet what he will say, um, but this comes at a time when there is much discussion about surveillance, possible surveillance of uh, Trump officials that uh, occurred during the uh, process of the campaign. Uh, Senator Paul, what's your take on whether we should look at that and, and where all that is going? Well, you know, I think President Trump was right to fire James Comey. I think he politicized the Clinton investigation. Virtually nobody in the country was happy with him. The Democrats all thought he went too far in assuming her guilt and publicly talking about it. And Republicans all thought, well, if that's true, why didn't he indict her? So there really was nobody happy with his performance. On the privacy front, I've had some conflict with Comey for some time because I've thought that, and this is really a fact, if you look at most, probably almost all of the domestic terrorist acts, they have one thing in common. They were all investigated by the FBI beforehand. Now, I know the FBI can't be perfect. They try to do the best they can. But, for example, the shooter in the Orlando killing at that dance club, that shooter Uh, A gun store owner called the FBI eight weeks in advance to that, and the FBI never looked at the security footage and never showed an array of people, a photo array of people that they'd been investigating for terrorism. And had they done that, that gun store owner recognized the guy and said, hey, that's the guy I called the FBI on. So I'm not asking them to be perfect, but whenever that would come up, Comey would simply say, oh, well, what we need is more power to look at everyone's information. We need to get rid of uh, encryption, and we need to create a government backdoor into everyone's data. And it's like, really? Why don't we just make the investigations a little bit longer of the people you're suspicious of? We're speaking to Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Senator, you are perhaps more than anyone else in the Senate uh, associated with, with libertarian ideology and libertarian tendencies, uh, right now there are uh, two issues that come up with regard to law enforcement um, that, uh, that are getting attention in the news cycle. One of them has to do with whether people should be forced to give their password for a, uh, a smartphone or, or other device. Uh, and the other has to do with whether the government should be able to track your physical presence via your cell phone without a warrant. What are your thoughts on those issues? Uh, I'm horrified by both of them. I've signed on to legislation already saying that if you're an American citizen and you've traveled overseas and you're coming back into your country, that the Fourth Amendment does apply to you at the border. I think it's completely crazy. We've had this tradition for several decades now that custom says the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. 
Now, I think there are reasonable searches, and one of them is in a, opening your luggage, looking for weapons, things like that. But looking at every bit of data and downloading your phone, that's unreasonable. And I think the courts would find it that way. But we've got to get it – actually, we're going to probably need legislation because the court has abdicated. Every time the court looks at this, court says, ah, well, legislature needs to tell us what they mean by this. But I think the Fourth Amendment applies to citizens coming back in, and I'd be horrified. Where would I go? I only have ever lived here. What if I came home and I won't give my fingerprint? Am I just going to go to a prison, some kind of border prison, and just stay there forever? And they've really been bullying people on that. And the on the other question was what looking at data on, on movements. Person people can be tracked based on their without a warrant based on their phone uh, their phone signal. I don't think that'll be upheld. You know, there was a Jones case where they looked at. Uh, you, surreptitiously putting GPS units on people's cars and following them everywhere all of the time uh, without a warrant. And that the court said that was too invasive. So I would imagine that they would say the same here. And what's important to remember is a lot, sometimes conservatives get upset with libertarians and say, oh, you don't want to do anything. Oh, we're going to stop crime. I'm all for it. All you got to do is name the person, the place, and what you want to search. Then you can stick a GPS tracker on anybody if you go to a judge first. But what libertarians don't want is that if you're worried about terrorism in Boston and you know these two boys have been to Russia, get a warrant to search their stuff. Libertarians don't have a problem with that. But you, we don't want you to search the whole city of Boston's telephone records looking for the two people that you should target through a specific warrant. Where are you on uh, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions and his recent guidance about sentencing and uh, and mandatory minimums. This was one of the first times when I, I had real concerns about where this DOJ under the Trump administration was heading. I wanted to know what your take was. You know, I think it's a bad idea. I think that um, one of the uh, hallmarks of justice is discretion. And so you need a little bit in the prosecutorial side, but you also need it for judges. So, for example, we have judges that have been forced to give people uh, three kids are riding around, 18, 19 years old. Three kids are riding around. There's drugs in the car. You know, you ask them all questions, and it turns out it's one kid that has the drugs. Well, what is a reasonable sentence? For none of them is it 10 years. But for the one kid who just happened to be in the car at the wrong place and said, it wasn't my drugs, these were my friends, I, I made a mistake in this car – to convict that kid of conspiracy and put him in 10 years for mandatory minimum, that is just not justice. So you have to allow the whole story to come out. We all have kids. We've all got relatives. Nobody's perfect in this world. But no one would want their, their kid to go to prison for 10 years for, you know, happen to be around uh, somebody who had drugs. And I think we have to have, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, – we need more discretion for judges to find what is actually a just sentence. Are you looking to get legislation passed in uh, – in the coming months, or are you working on legislation about uh, mens rea protection, essentially for those listening, meaning that somebody would have to have uh, criminal intent under a reasonable person standard or recklessness in order to be charged with a crime? Because uh, that is not necessarily a part of many federal many federal statutes. People can unknowingly run afoul of criminal statutes. Uh, is that something that you're going to work on, looking to do? Where are you on that? You know, I've been uh, part of a bipartisan coalition that's been working on criminal justice for the last several years, and we actually thought that since President Obama was uh, somewhat friendly to the issue that we'd get it through, but he never really worked very hard with the legislature. He was kind of a little too good to come and talk to us up on the Hill, and he just never got it much done because he didn't have a good uh, working relationship with either party, really. 
So we still have that same bipartisan working group, but we've got some obstacles to overcome. I think if the president were to hear us and to hear how some of the stuff is working, I think we could do it. What you mentioned with mens rea is something that Republicans tend to like because there's a lot of regulatory crime where you have no idea you've broken a crime and you certainly had no intent. So mens rea means you have to have intent in order for it to be a crime. And uh, we think that would be a good addition. That might get some more Republicans on the criminal justice uh, reform. But it's really something that Republicans have become more and more involved with. In my state, our governor is a Christian, conservative, first Republican in a long time. And he passed a bill that says if you've been behaving yourself for five years for a nonviolent felony, that there will be a process to expunge your record because then you're more likely to work and not go back into doing things that are illegal. And it's a way of saying that even the government can have a form of forgiveness if you uh, behave for a while. I'd like to see something like that at the federal level personally, but I know you've got your hands full of a lot of things. Uh, one more for you, Senator. The, the president's talking about uh, – we'll talk today about privatizing – uh, privatizing air traffic control and also talking about infrastructure. Uh, what do you think about privatizing uh, air traffic control just as a, as a concept? Anything that can be privatized uh, probably will be run better. Um, I always sort of jokingly say it's not that government is inherently stupid, but that is a debatable question. It's that government doesn't get the right signals. The reason the marketplace works with no sort of planner, no no sort of you know dictator telling you how to make a pencil or how to make coffee or how to make a bottle of water, it happens because of the invisible hand of everybody trying to make the maximum profit. And as they do so, they can only do it by pleasing the person who buys it. So it's all voluntary. Government doesn't get any of those signals, so government is inherently inefficient. And I think Friedman summarized it really well when he said, you know what, the problem with government is that nobody spends somebody else's money as wisely as their own. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for that. Team, we are going to hit a, a break, and we'll be right back. Joe in California on the iHeart app. What's up, sir? Shields high, Buck. Shields high, Joe. Hey, uh, excellent opening monologue. Um, and uh, Thank you, sir. What I'm going to say does contradict just a few elements of it, but on the whole, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I just, you know, there always are things to add. And so, you know, we're at another Monday, another weekend terrorist attack, and there was Boston, Berlin, San Bernardino, France, Fresno, London Bridge, Manchester, Pulse Nightclub, Fort Hood. Um, you know, I know that they can't get everything, but it does seem that there are many times when our official stated policy is see something, say something, but the actual working policy is see something, say something, do nothing. Now, you had mentioned before that um, – you know, it's a very small percentage of people that are committing these these acts, and I'm sure that's true. You know much more about it than I do. But uh, thinking back to the uh, the November 13th attack in Paris, 2015, you know, those guys hid out in in uh, in their neighborhood for a couple weeks after the attack happened, and that wouldn't have been able to happen without a lot of people who, uh, you know, maybe some of them were afraid, but I'm sure that some of them were. Uh, to some extent, at least not 
you know, not against what they did. Um, does that make sense to you? Do you think that that's, I mean, there, there have to be enough. Oh, absolutely. There, I mean, the, the idea that there are people who are not active participants in a terrorist plot, but may have or should have known something and or done something about it, that, that that's the case in many instances. And we used to, uh, in the NYPD Intelligence Division, we would refer to the cell and the cluster. The cell would be the, in this case, the cell of the three the three guys who are now shot by London police, right? Uh, they're the active operational terrorist element. But the cluster would be the, you know, the the guy who maybe was a, a radicalized imam that was in email contact with them or, uh, you know, who was encouraging them further down this pathway or, or somebody who... Uh, was, you know, selling them these knives, knowing that they were, you know, crazy, radical jihadists. I mean, they, the, the cluster is a more loosely affiliated group of people who are around the cell, not necessarily a part of it. Sometimes maybe uh, go into cr- criminal activity, whether they're part of the conspiracy or they're uh, assisting or providing material support in some way. But generally speaking, they're just those who are around the cell who should have done something, should have known something, or maybe did know something and said nothing. Uh, as to your say something, do nothing uh, comment about the police and the authorities, I understand the frustrations with this um, because clearly when, when when someone is posing for a, a photos with a, with a jihadist flag and is part of a, the jihadis next door, a TV show, you would think that it shouldn't be hard to uh, to stop them or or to you know pick them up and arrest them for something and and send them to prison. But I just would ask people, what's the charge? I mean, having crazy beliefs, you know, being a an anti-American, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, conspiracy theorist, pro uh, pro jihad in your rhetoric, Islamist is is disgusting but not necessarily illegal this is where we get into some very difficult territory and i know people want to make it illegal uh because we just want to lock up these these jerks and and stop them from killing people uh, but what does that statute look like you know the the i right, think and I agree you, with that. you know what i mean i i agree with that and i don't think that's the you know where i'm heading I, i'm not sure what the solution is but i at least i would like um, to not hear that, you know, there's nothing to see here. This is the new normal. Get used to it. I want to hear maybe this is a fight that we can't win, but we have this never going to end, but we have no choice but to fight. And this is. Oh, I, I agree with you. I mean, constant, also, constant vigilance for, for and, and a, re- a refusal, an utter refusal. You know, I mean, I start off the show with a, a, a Churchill quote, which is kind of funny because I'm an American doing a show in America, but, you know, we, we will never surrender. I mean that has to be the attitude to this, uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, places where we can go on offense, but you know, in our day to day, the first step I really do believe the first step is just honesty in our discussion about this, um, and that that has long term effects, right? The the conversation about where Islam is going and and what can be done about radicalism has to be uh, happening. All over the place in this country, in the UK, around the Muslim world, around the world in general, uh, and it is hopeful that there'll be, or we hope that there'll be effects. I mean, remember, it's sort of like the struggle against communism, uh, in that there's communism and then there's socialism, right? And so there's uh, there are different levels of it, and there are the people that are members of the Politburo, and there are you know Stalin's 
thugs and there are KGB, you know, hardliners. Then there are also just people who happen to live behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union, right? I mean, so it's a co- complexity in an ideological battle. This is not the first time we have faced this. And I think some people, I think the Cold War is a, is a useful analogy for how we should approach this, right? I mean, uh, countries that... Probably were, the best. Go ahead. It's probably about the best that we have, but again, it, you know, there are... Uh, but, uh, well, I guess one similarity would be, too, that during the, you know, 70s and 80s, I remember a lot of people telling me that the things about this, how much better the Soviet Union was than America when I was a young man, you know, and I never really bought that. But Yeah, look, there are people well, in, in our own in our own society who uh, are not helpful in this ideological fight. Um, that's that's to be sure. Joe in California, good to talk to you, my friend. Shields, hi. Um, so. Yeah, look, I, I understand all the layers of, uh, there's many layers of, of complexity at work here. Um, and I, I wish I could say that you know, the ideological fight was clear, that it was straightforward, that we uh, knew where all of this was, was heading. But it, it, it's, it starts with a will to fight and a willingness to be honest about what's going on here. Um, so we'll continue to... Stay on it here in the Freedom Hut. Um, I should note there was, speaking of terrorism, I don't have much in the way of details in this, but Australia uh, has, uh, Australian police are saying that a siege in Melbourne, this is from Reuters, is an act of terrorism, and there's been a claim by the Islamic State that one of its fighters was the gunman responsible. This guy held a woman hostage. It's not a mass casualty attack, as I understand it. Uh, And the Islamic State, via Amak, its news, you know, its news arm, its propaganda arm, said that the attack was launched because of Australia's membership in a U.S.-led coalition against the militant group. And the Australians are saying we're treating it as an act of terrorism. So it seems like this guy may have tried to pull off an attack and three officers were wounded in the shootout. Uh, But other than that, uh, wait, sorry. Three officers were wounded in the shootout, which ended the siege, and a second man, in addition to the hostage taker, died from a, a gunshot wound. Okay, so it looks like there was one uh, one non-terrorist here who was killed, other than that, three officers wounded. Uh, so Australia thinks that it just had a terrorist attack. Not a mass casualty one, but you know, it's been how many hours since the last— claimed by the Islamic State. It's been how many hours since the last— uh, ISIS-inspired or directed attack on a, on a U.S. ally? I mean— Look, this is uh, this is the fight we are in. Um, we're gonna switch gears and talk a bit about some policy matters, including the uh, challenges facing retail and the opioid epidemic. So we'll do that in a minute. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. All right, everybody, welcome back. We've got Kevin Williamson on the line. He is roving correspondent for National Review. Kevin, great to have you. Hey, I'm just here to ruin your audience ratings with some budget nerd talk, so uh, let's go. All right. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you about America's retail first, but you want to talk budget nerd stuff? Let's go for it. What's what's well, interesting about budget about the budget right now? 
Well, you know, the uh, Republicans are trying to use reconciliation to force Congress to uh, actually pass some cuts in mandatory spending, which is kind of interesting because what usually happens is they pass a budget. And, of course, the budget is not a binding document of any sort. It's just a statement of policy preferences. And then everything goes to the individual committees that actually authorize spending and and, and decide what's going to happen. So it's kind of an unpopular thing to do because it makes you commit yourself to a vote on things that somebody is bound to dislike and you don't actually get anything good out of it. But some of the Republicans on the budget committee are looking to put some uh, what are called reconciliation instructions into the bill. And those actually are enforceable. So if they say you have to cut, they're going to say 400 to 500 billion dollars in mandatory spending over the next 10 years, then Congress actually has to cut it. So it should be interesting to see if they do it. I'm guessing you think that they won't. No, I think that they I think that they actually probably will. I think that really? they'll uh, probably go through. I mean, the fight right now is different people want to use reconciliation for different things this time around. So what the leadership really wants is to use reconciliation to put through tax reform. But there's no reason you can't do both things. And, uh, you know, it's kind of um, Republicans don't expect their current position to last forever. They know they're in an awfully good position right now, and it's not going to stay that way forever. And they want to get some stuff done. And there is some room in what's called mandatory spending to to make some cuts. Usually when you're talking about mandatory spending, you're talking about Social Security and Medicare and the big entitlement programs. But there are a few other things in there like federal pensions, some grant programs, uh, and some other stuff is kind of just, you know, it's legislative automatically on track, which is called mandatory spending. And they could actually, you know, cut some of that back. So even if it's $500 billion over 10 years, that's not a huge chunk of money in terms of the big federal apparatus but it's you know it's not nothing either all right uh kevin i also want to ask you about your piece in national review america's retail american retail's fast furious decline uh, i got a little nostalgic yeah. as you as you were going through how the mall <laughs> and as somebody who who grew up or rather during his teen years watch shows like like saved by the bell uh as well as others beverly hills 90210 uh, my perception of, of America in my teens, of what like the most of America was, uh, involved s- suburban Los Angeles and kids <laughs> hanging out at a mall. But malls and the right, retail that they represent are in trouble. I wanted to just tell people about what's going on here. Yeah, well, malls and stores in general are closing all over the country at a record pace right now, faster than they did during the financial crisis. Uh, something like 8,000 stores are expected to close this year. And 25% of the malls are expected to close over the next 10 years. And this has largely to do with the move to online retailing. Uh, something I want to say I read that nearly 100% of growth in consumer spending for the last five years has been on Amazon. Um, it's, it's like the whole thing. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Uh, malls were a sort of you know, utopian idea for a certain period of time where you would build this enclosed space and control everything inside it. And this would be where commerce would happen. And like all plans like this, it just didn't work out for various reasons. And malls kind of became some of them became kind of skeezy places where, you know, people you didn't want to be around hung out. And then the high end retail would move off to other places. The middle of the trail would follow and so on and so forth. Uh, so you've got a situation which retailers don't want to be locked into these big enclosed locations that traditionally had pretty high rents. And so there's closing all over the country. And uh, so I was up in Oklahoma City or a suburb of Oklahoma City looking at the situation there where they've got this giant, I don't know how big it is, 225,000-square-foot mall that's largely abandoned except for a Sears and a church. And, uh, you know, it used to be responsible for a million dollars a year or so of uh, 
local tax revenue. Now it's just uh, kind of a blight and an expense. And cities are going to have to figure out what to do about this. And it's also interesting from an employment point of view because about a tenth of all the full-time jobs in the United States are uh, retail sales jobs. And it's, it's the most common job in the country is retail sales. And if these stores are going, then the jobs are going too. And some of them will come on the back end of places like Amazon doing warehouse management and fulfillment and those kinds of things. But a lot of what were traditional kind of first jobs for teenagers, you know, working at the food court at the mall, working at the shoe section at Sears, something like that, those jobs just aren't going to be there anymore. And it's not really entirely clear what's going to replace them. Yeah, I, people have said that, uh, you know, I've, I've read some of the, the folks out there who are actually quite uh, alarmist about this. I mean, whether I think uh, Elon Musk, uh, I think Bill Gates, yeah. there are a number of them who are pointing out that, yes, in the past, as industries evolved, you know, people would go from one, you know, a very simplistic way of saying it is you know, people go from manufacturing uh, horse carriages and buggy whips to, you know, motor vehicles or something, right? But with, with the auto, with the increased speed of automation and the, the replacement of jobs with algorithms, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's not that instead of making this, you're making that. Now it's a computer is making and distributing things. It's not clear to, to people that are looking at this issue very closely that employment will come back in, in some form in these areas at all. Yeah, and it's not just low-end jobs either. There was a uh, new computer program that was unveiled the other day that did something like 38,000 man-hours worth of lawyer work in about two seconds. So um, it's going to hit a lot of different occupations. I think where those guys are wrong isn't so much that employment's going to go away, that there won't be jobs. There are always going to be jobs because human labor is inherently valuable. But the pay difference and the uh, and the reward difference between jobs that are not in direct competition with automation and outsourcing versus the jobs that are is going to be ever more uh, steep than it already is. So I think you're going to see a wider spread between the kind of top 20% of jobs and the bottom 80% of jobs. And that will bring some social tension with it, certainly, as it already has. We're speaking to Kevin Williamson. He is roving correspondent for National Review. Uh, Kevin, I want to ask you about the the opioid epidemic. Uh, th- this is something that I've I've had experts on the show in the past to uh, talk about the the actual the, the chemistry. You know what the problems are here. It's really fentanyl now. It's not heroin, and there are some versions of fentanyl that are becoming very commonplace on the street that are thousands of times more potent than heroin. Uh, so so certainly the, the drug, which doesn't require uh, a, a greenhouse or, you know, being tended as a plant outside. It can just be built synthetically. Uh, that is part of the problem. But when you look at the numbers, and the, the New York Times has actually compiled what they are for 2016, 59,000 to 65,000 people now, they're still getting the exact figure in, but let's say over 60,000 people, it looks like, died from drug overdoses in 2016. Most of these are yep. opioid-related what is going on? And I mean that at, at a philosophical level, it seems like our, our poor areas, and by the way, a lot of them predominantly white areas of the country, going through mm-hmm. some form of, of mass self-medication because of existential despair. What's happening? Yeah, well, not to go all social justice warrior on you, which isn't really my, uh, my mode, but one of the reasons we're talking about this as much as we are is because it's middle class uh, white people who are now dying of Uh, opiate overdoses and heroin overdoses and not poor urban black folks. The number of heroin users actually hasn't changed all that much in the last 20 years. It's more or less steady. Uh, What happened with the opiate stuff is that we have pretty loosey-goosey rules about prescribing 
prescribing Oxycontin and stuff for a long time. Got a lot of people hooked on it. Rules, and those people couldn't get their pills anymore, and they turned to uh, heroin. So that's been part of the problem. That's where the fentanyls really come in because that was originally used to kind of spike and cut heroin. It doesn't quite get you high in the same way heroin does. It's more of an um, anesthetic, but it adds a little punch to it, and some addicts decided they kind of like that punch, and others kind of switch to fentanyl itself. Uh, what is going on is a couple of things. One is that there have been some changes in the suppliers, and every time there's a change in where the supply comes from, you get a bunch of overdoses because the formula changes. Same thing happened back in the 80s when the supply changed from the Far East to uh, South America. So we're seeing uh, different providers coming into the market than were there 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and they're using different formulas, different strength. They're putting fentanyl in, things like that. So we did see a pretty big spike in overdoses. But I think one of the reasons really why we're talking about it so much is that the people we're seeing addicted to heroin, addicted to opiates, are not the sort of people that we historically think of as stereotypical drug addicts. They're often middle class, often white, or working class and white. Um, some of them are quite a bit older. They're middle-aged and up. Some of them are quite a bit younger, uh, people who would normally be college age. And I think that it's just one of those things where you see people who look more familiar to you and less like what you think of as, as a population of drug addicts, as stereotypical and bad as that sounds, uh, the more interesting the story gets to people. I think that uh, a lot of this is you know, diseases of despair. If you look at the declining life expectancies of non-college-educated whites, which are declining for the first time ever, uh, it's drug overdoses, it's things related to drinking and suicides. Uh, so all of these together are, you know, something I call the diseases of despair, and that's really what's uh, driving that declining life expectancy. Is that a place then where there should be a discussion about uh, what declining attendance at church, declining value of, uh, you know, men in the in the labor force? I mean, what do you yeah. put in it? Well, you know, what are the root causes of the diseases of despair as you see them? Well, I think it all kind of goes back to family. You know, if you've got a family. And you're, if you're a man especially and you've got your place in the world fixed as a husband and father, then even if you're struggling economically, even if other things are not quite right in your life, you've got that rock. You know, you've got that foundation that's kind of what makes your life make sense. But if you're, you know, 35 years old, never been married, don't have any kids, or maybe you've got a couple of kids but they're estranged, you're not particularly attached to any relationships, you're not particularly attached to your family, your economic prospects aren't that great, uh, you know, Getting high maybe sounds like a pretty good alternative for a Saturday night if that's your life. And uh, once it becomes a habit, then it's a habit. And that's kind of how these things work. Do you, they're, they're assuming that, by the way, 2017, based on what they've seen so far, might be even more. I mean, you're talking about more than 60,000 people now in 2017 might die from uh, from this, uh, this opioid. And it's truly an epidemic. I mean, the, the peak gun deaths yeah. here they show— were around uh, 40,000 in 1993. So you've got over 60,000 yeah. people dying from opioids. What do you think is, is a sensible approach to try to, to, try to start to turn the, uh, the curve the other way? Well, you know, there's not just the kind of one single thing. I mean, there are some things that you can do, like making the counteracting drugs more readily available. Uh, sometimes they're prescribing those actually to addicts themselves and their families instead of to EMS so that they've got those uh, on hand if they have an overdose. But it's really a larger spiritual crisis. It's a question of how people live and what they live for and how they want to organize their lives. I really think that the drugs are more of an effect than a cause. It has to do more with um, 
decline in a class of people's sense of its own prospects and sense of its own values. So it is exist. There is some existential despair. I mean, I, that was how I initially asked you. That would be a part of this. Yeah, certainly. All right. Kevin Williamson, everybody of National Review. Check out his latest at nationalreview.com and follow him on Twitter at Kevin NR. Mr. Williamson, thank you as always. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Uh, team hitting a break. We will be right back. Air traffic control might get a little better. That'd be kind of nice. Here's what the Donald himself had to say about it today. Play it. Today we're proposing to take American air travel into the future, finally. Finally. Right? Finally. It's a long time. We're proposing reduced wait times, increased route efficiency, and far fewer delays. Our plan will get you where you need to go more quickly, more reliably, more affordably. And yes, for the first time in a long time, on time, we will launch this air travel revolution by modernizing the outdated system of air traffic control. It's about time. I think this is great. (laughs) I think this uh, would be fantastic. Other other countries have already done this uh, successfully. Uh, in in Europe, they've there are, there are countries that have gone the private sector in this. Why do we think that the private sector wouldn't be good at this? By the way, uh, if the private sector can run the planes, why can't the private sector run air traffic control? Uh, so this is one of those items that I I know it doesn't get the same uh, rapt attention as say. Uh, somebody with the latest revelation about Comey's upcoming testimony. Oh, my gosh. Let's talk about that a little bit in the next hour. Um, but it, it's one of those items that if the president manages to do this, this might actually benefit your life. Those of us who have been stuck, and I'm sure countless uh, people listening right now would be the case that this has happened to them. When you've been stuck and you are sitting on that tarmac and you're like, and there's no bad weather. And you're just like, what's going on? Why am I here? And at what point I should know, is it kidnapping when a private entity is holding you and you cannot leave? Right? I know that technically it doesn't meet the, the criminal definition of kidnapping, but it sort of feels like kidnapping when you're on that tarmac. It's been an hour or maybe two. And I know that then they start passing around some bottles of water and some pretzels. What if you can't have gluten? Too bad. Just drink some water. Be quiet. Uh, so this is this has been a long time, uh, long time coming, I think, and it, it might be a really nice thing that helps all of, helps all of us at some point or another. Uh, this is we're going to have a more fulsome discussion of infrastructure and Trump's infrastructure plans later on in the week. Uh, for right now, though, uh, air traffic control I think is a good start, and it would just be great if you could start to plan air travel along the idea that if you look at the weather, the weather's all clear. The plane should more or less. I know there's mechanical errors and and problems that that can also slow things down, but uh, a shocking number of delays have to do with air traffic control. And I I always think to myself, why is this why is this so hard? Isn't there a movie 
Uh, there's a movie about this. I think uh, who's the guy who's married to Angelina Jolie for a little while? He's in it. Billy Bob Thornton, right? Isn't he in a movie about air traffic controllers? Well, anyway. Uh, so this is one thing that Trump's got on the agenda that I think um, that I think would be a good thing. So we'll continue the thought. Oh, by the way, Al Gore. We can't not play a little Al Gore after the climate, the Paris Climate Change Agreement last week. Trump says he's pulling out. And uh, here's here's Gore on his private jet, one of the great hypocrisies of the whole climate change movement. Al Gore wants to eliminate the combustion engine, essentially, and flies around the world on jets and pushes plans that would help create China, make it stronger. Yeah, well, I don't have a private jet, and uh, what what the carbon emissions come from my trips on Southwest Airlines are are, are offset. Uh, I, I live a carbon-free lifestyle to the maximum extent possible. I live a carbon-free lifestyle to, no, to the maximum extent possible. Uh, this guy, it, he is such a a bag of lies. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's just wow. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he doesn't. He never, never, pri- never flies private. That guy never flies private. Uh, and I like this: uh, carbon offsets. This goes to the the basic uh, analysis of climate alarmism as a as a religion. But it's it's a medi- it's a medieval religion in a sense that there are indulgences, like you can pay for your sins. Hence, carbon offsets. So you can pollute, but if you pay somebody else to pollute less, then it all evens out. I mean, what kind of nonsense is this we've got more stay with me the freedom hut rocks online too you can hang out with team buck anytime plus get buck's latest news and analysis go to bucksexton.com bucksexton.com that's bucksexton.com shields high Welcome back, team. Story breaking uh, just while we are on air here. I want to share this with you from the Washington Examiner. Federal contractor Reality Lee Winner arrested for sending classified NSA intelligence to news outlet. A 25-year-old federal contractor is facing charges. She leaked a classified National Security Agency document to a news outlet in May. The charges against Reality Lee Winner came about an hour after the publication of a story based on an NSA document detailing Russian attempts to hack American voting systems in 2016. Uh, Winner is facing charges that she removed classified material from a government facility and mailed it to a news outlet. Um, The Justice Department didn't confirm that Winner leaked the document to The Intercept. That's the uh, publication here uh, at issue. Uh, But the intelligence, I'm sorry, but the report stated the report received by the news outlet was dated May 5th. The affidavit confirms the intelligence document was also dated on May 5th. Uh, She was assigned to work for a government facility in Georgia. She held the top secret classified security clearance since February. Uh, She's accused of sending the classified document to a news outlet a few days after printing it off. The Justice Department didn't confirm that Winner leaked the document to The Intercept, but the report stated that the report received by the news outlet was dated May 5th. Um, Okay. 
so here's where we are now. And people are are, are saying um, that, well, a few, a few things about this, first of all. Um, I was, well, I still think this will happen. My concern uh, when we had the Trump administration saying that, you know, we're, we're going to get the leakers, we're going to get the leakers, is that they'll never get the leakers who were senior previously Obama administration officials who were cautious, who probably would only leak person to person because they don't want to leave a trail. Um, and you, they're, they're, so they're not going to get those leakers, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but my guess is that those individuals were smart enough, although they maybe were arrogant, but were smart enough to be cautious. So the ones who have been leaking uh, to hurt Trump uh, with some of these stories that we've seen in recent months uh, from former senior administration officials, I doubt you'll get them. And so my concern had been that they, you know, they'll find some, uh, yeah, some Air Force guy who takes like the wrong photo of a of a, of a plane and doesn't share it with anyone, doesn't do anything, but he, but he's got the photo and, and they, they nail him, right, to make an example of him. Things like this happen in the military, the intelligence community sometimes, where senior people, you know, Petraeus, obviously Hillary Clinton. Uh, have a very different form of treatment for the way they handle classified information and all the laws surrounding it than just, you know, the people, the the day-to-day folks who do these jobs. Uh, So my concern had been that a a low-level person would get crushed to set an example and to make it seem like uh, counterintelligence uh, and, you know, or the FBI was was doing its, uh, its job here to stop people from leaking really damaging information to the press. Uh, this is not really that. Now, look, this is a, this is different than what I thought would happen, because I mean, assuming this is all true, and let, let's be clear, it is an allegation right now. This woman has not been proven guilty of a crime yet in a court of law, so these are alleged crimes. But if we are to assume that this is true, this is really reckless stuff. Uh, I mean, this is like this is like wow. This is not. Uh, uh, a good faith error, confusion. Um, this isn't the government coming down hard on somebody who just made a mistake that people could make. This is, well, I have access to top secret information, and I'm just going to, like, take it and send it to a news publication as is. I mean, th- that is astonishing. And I'm sure, you know, th- th- I mean, if th- by the way, if that's not illegal, if they're not going to punish that, because I'm, I am all for uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to good faith errors when it comes to. Because I look, I could sit around and tell you about what happens inside, what happens inside Langley, and what happens to friends of mine uh, in the military with clearances, and it's just stuff can happen, right? Within reason, stuff can happen. Doesn't mean that it should go unpunished or doesn't. But you know, there's a difference between something going in your file and or maybe even your clearance being suspended and or maybe you being fired. And sending you to federal prison for a long time, right? These are all different. Uh, these are all different levels of, of sanction. Um, for the, I made a mistake, but a normal, you know, but it was in good faith, right? I I dropped something, or I, I think that the, the uh, that there should be mercy for people in those circumstances. Um, and I say all that because in this case, I'm just like, well, if if this woman doesn't get in trouble for this, well, then nobody gets in trouble, right? I mean. If you can uh, send marked top secret information to a news publication just because you feel like it and and not 
face serious uh, uh, serious criminal sanction, then the whole national security, you know, secrecy just goes away. So uh, this isn't really I, I had a, what I'm saying here is I had thought that somebody would get that the first leaker, so to speak, would be a it would be like what we saw under the Obama administration, where in some cases they really went after people for either relatively minor leaks or even in some cases, uh, in 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 one case of an NSA whistleblower, uh, real whistleblowing that that was that was true whistleblowing that did not involve any uh, exposure of of classified information, and it was just the government wanted to crush somebody. Uh, so I, I thought maybe we'd see that. No, th- this is bad. This is like y- you can't do you can't do this. This is. Mm. Uh, and now there's more information coming out about our daily caller here saying that, uh, quote, the 25 year old woman who stole top secret documents from the National Security Agency and leaked them to the intercept appears to be a supporter of Bernie Sanders and other progressive icons such as Bill Maher and Michael Moore. Uh, Reality Lee winners. Uh, apparent social media footprint also shows that she is. Uh, by the way, whenever I see an unusual name, I have to remind myself that my name is Buck Sexton. So, you know. Reality, reality winner is, is, you know, my name is Buck Saxton. I can't, I can't, I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, anyway, that her apparent social media footprint also shows that she is a supporter of other liberal causes, including the Women's March and the Islamic Society of North America, the Muslim Civil Rights Group. And she also recently referred to President Trump as a piece of blank. Uh, she was indicted in federal court on Monday. Uh, so, all right. Um, and she said, apparently it says here, well, I'm sorry. I mean, it says that she admitted to FBI agents that she stole documents and provided them to the intercept. And it also says here that the news site published an article on Monday that appears to be based on the stolen materials. That's not yet confirmed. Uh, and that, uh, that story, according to the daily caller here is the top is that top secret record show that Russian agents attempted to hack into us voting systems prior to the November election. So if all of this is, in fact, what it seems to be, you would have a left-wing Bernie Sanders uh, supporting Trump hater who just decided to send classified information that I suppose she thought might add some fuel to the fire of the Russia election hacking story to a news site to publish it, just as is. Um, so, And by the way, they've, they've been able to look at at her background on this because this part of our reality now is everybody you know your your social media footprint you know all that stuff you write about you know i i hate this i like that if you ever get if you ever get a lot of media attention people see all that and they can pull it and those photos are no longer private and those posts become fodder for news stories so uh that's that's where this that's where this is right now um this is a uh, reality winner, according to a reporter with The Guardian, is a former U.S. Air Force linguist. Um, okay, that's according to The Guardian here. And she's politically active. Um, th- this would be somebody who, again, not this is not all yet verified. We do not know. The, the Justice Department has not said that the intercept story about Russia trying to hack into uh, voting machines... Or, or or the Bureau of Elections. I, I got to get the, uh, actually, the, let me get the specifics on that. Um, I, I haven't actually, I'll be honest with you, I haven't read that Intercept piece, which I should, this is all just happening now as I'm on air here. So, uh, but uh, assuming that she passed information that was then published 
in the intercept on some Russian hacking effort. This is the this is the hyper politicization within some intelligence and national security circles that people have been so concerned about for a while. Um, and, you know, she probably saw this and she figured, well, this will this will uh, help the anti-Trump Russia collusion narrative. And I, and I can I'm, I'm sure she thought that this was, you know, in her mind, although uh, the way that she went about this is just. I mean, didn't take them long to arrest her, uh, didn't take them long to figure this out. I see my friend Sean Davis from The Federalist uh, is tweeting out that she that this leaker uh, may have sent classified information from her. No, I mean, really? I Hold on a second. From her computer at I, I have a hard time with it. Hold, hold on. I, I want to before I even say this, I, I want to make sure that this is. Um, uh are, are, here's what Sean's saying from the Federalist.com. Arrested leaker said climate change is humanity's biggest threat. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh, yeah, here he, he wrote this. Uh, our, our buddy Sean, who'll be with us probably tomorrow. The best part, the leaked suspect in the case actually emailed the media outlet from her work computer. Uh and this is also from Sean at the Federalist. Instead of providing information for corroboration, the news outlet gave the feds the actual document she leaked. Uh, so they helped the feds track down. What? Wow. That's uh, I've always been wondering about how this will be handled when what happens when we realize that that journalists you know, yeah, they say they don't give up their sources, but what happens if journalists just start giving up their sources sometimes because they feel like it? Because you know the the political winds change. Um, I'm not, I don't know if that's what happened here. I'm just saying there's definitely some indications that they were not. Uh, there was a lack of caution here for the level of infor- for this kind of leaking. I mean, leaking top secret information. Y- you can't have a clearance, a top secret clearance, without them telling you. They're like, look, if you if you give information that is classified to the press, it's a crime, and you're going to be in a whole a whole heap of trouble um and to just to do that is anyway here we are um somebody from the left the 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 story right now is that somebody from the left leaked top secret information to hurt the uh to hurt trump to add to the russia collusion uh or just i mean you know to add to the russia did something for the election really it's really not russia collusion it's just Russia election stuff. That's the allegation here I'm seeing in the press. And, whew, man, um, this is the first. I, I don't know if they're going to find more leakers, but I, I guess on this one, I, I had assumed it would be just, you know, they, they, they crush a small person to make an example to the rest on a small thing. But this isn't a small thing. This is this is bad. You, you can't do this. Uh, this is not something that that's going to the DOJ is going to look up. All right. So that's that story. This leaker. We'll see. We'll follow. Um, And uh, in a minute, we will have more, my friends. I'll be right back. I'm seeing that this uh, alleged NSA leaker also in what is purported to be her, uh, her social media activity referred to the president as a piece of blank. Um... Not the only person that I've seen in recent days refer to the president publicly as a piece of blank. I'm thinking of somebody who has his own show at CNN. Um, he goes 
Uh, I for, and he also goes on many different uh, shows there as, as an expert on on religion and specifically on on Islamic issues and even terrorism, uh, an issue which I suppose he studies but has no actual practical knowledge of. Uh, but uh, Reza Aslan, this guy, and I have never actually crossed paths with him. I, there, there's another person that's the, who goes makes the rounds on TV and, and takes a very similar point of view that criticism of Islam is Islamophobia and everyone uh, is a uh, an idiot who thinks that there's a connection between Islam and terrorism and Islamic terrorism. As um, as a ruler Gibral, whom I have interacted with uh, once in the past and found to be uh, pretty uh, pretty detestable. Um, but at least in, in her presentation of herself on TV, maybe she's a lovely person and, you know, see, I'm way too nice. I, I'm way, everyone's telling me I need to like pick more fights with people in media and like get nastier, but I'm always, I, I will criticize the public persona. I try not to get into someone's worthless and, you know, terrible as a person. Um, but yeah, Ms. Gibral was, uh, was disrespectful and, and was aided and abetted in, in her disrespect, uh, in, in a CNN ambush on air that I had to deal with, what was it, I don't know, two years ago now. Uh, but Reza Aslan's another one who goes on TV and, and everyone but him, everyone is dumb other than other than him. You know, anybody who's been in the, you know, the FBI or, you know, been in the, in the military wants to talk about terrorism, doesn't know anything, you know, because they're not actually, like, dealing with terrorists, right? I mean, they, you know, they don't know. Um, he's one of these uh, who, who goes on TV and says this. And he call, he after President Trump's tweet, he responded to the president's tweet that he is a piece of blank, and he has since apologized for that. But it's not the first time he said that Trump specifically is is that that he's used profanity about the president, uh, and and he says publicly pretty, um, you know, pretty incredible. Uh, pretty incredibly nasty and vile stuff on a regular basis. And CNN has said he's not an employee. And look, I, I should also note, I, I pick out things about what's going on at CNN that I don't like. There are a lot of, I mean, there are actually some anchors at CNN that I like a lot. There are some really smart, great people, lots of really great, smart people who work over there in all kinds of capacities. But there are some that I have an issue with. And the overall editorial tone, I also, uh, overall editor, you know, overall editorial direction about Trump is something that I have a problem with. Okay. Uh, but but Aslan is not fired. Uh, he's saying that he's sorry or something. I mean, he's given some kind of apology. Uh, but they, they run a show of his on CNN. I mean, I can just tell you that if you were a conservative with whether a show that they had picked up or a contributor to CNN or any of, the, any of the above, and you had called President Obama any kind of profane name, you would be done. You would be out. No question about it, right? You would be off air, finished. Uh, and so the double standard is apparent for us once again. Uh, but but also, I have to say, you know, Aslan is treated with real deference and and a, and a deep and abiding respect, as though he is some kind of uh, first-tier intellectual over at, at CNN and, and MSNBC and on other networks. Um, and he's somebody who has consistently inflated his academic credentials, uh, just as a, as a matter of course, and speaks down to people and gets away with being really nasty uh, and I'm just I'm, I'm frustrated to see that once again, uh, he will be protected and held up by the left uh, for, well, doing what he does, which is if you ever see this guy in, in interviews and in discussions, I mean, he's just so snide. 
Um, uh, I would actually love the opportunity to sit and, and have a have a debate, but I mean, he wouldn't sit with me, I'm sure, for any number of reasons, right, um, on all these issues. Uh, but it, I'll, I want to make, just so you can understand before I continue to rant about how this guy is going to get away with this, and he makes an argument that the left loves, which is that, and, and he's one of the primary purveyors of the argument, which is that there's, Islam is this vast uh, belief system with so many different people, and, you know, does a Turkish Muslim believe the same things as an Indonesian Muslim? Does a Sunni Muslim believe the same thing as a Shia Muslim? He just, he, he understands, I mean, correctly in the sense that that is, those are all true statements, but he hides in the complexity of Islam and makes sure that you never are able to come to the very obvious conclusion that, yeah, but Islam, specifically among all religions right now, has a terrorism problem. It, it, it is a problem within Islam. It, it is not a, it is not a, oh, Christianity has this and Judaism has this and everybody has this. No, no. There was something specifically wrong. Something has gone awry within that faith tradition right now. It doesn't mean the whole thing, but it does mean that it is specific too. And he just sort of hides the, you know, he, he hides the football on this argument. I mean, he, he always has a way of, of, and usually then it also turns into a credentialing battle with somebody. Well, you know, I, I'm, uh, he'll say, you know, I have a PhD, and and actually, I think his his only professorship was in like creative writing at some at some uh, UC school or something like that. Um, but you know, he'll have a whole. I, I am an academic. I'm a scholar. I've written many books. I'm I'm amazing. My, you know, my home smells of rich mahogany in the uh, tradition of Anchorman. Um, so he's just a a really seems like a really nasty bad guy. But the left, including the biggest anchors on TV. Love this guy. So he'll be fine, even though he said the president, well, you know what he said. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. To Nebraska more. I, you're welcome. We'd love to have you work in the fields with us. Work in the fields. That's part of that. Bill Maher went on to say right after that, I'm a house N-word, which I, I didn't want to play the clip for you because it's a very ugly word. Uh, and I always make sure this is a, a show where I'm careful about the language I use. Um, and Bill Maher is allowed to say technically whatever he wants on cable TV in terms of the FCC. Uh, He can't be fined, so he can curse as he does constantly. But he said the N-word, and now they are uh, calling for his firing. A a little backstory here before I get too far into an analysis of of Bill Maher. Uh, I think that his show, and I sat in the audience once because I had a friend, a friend of mine from media who was on the show, and I was uh, invited to go and hang out. Uh, I think his audience is among the most uh, progressive, left-wing, crazy uh, groups of, of people you'll find in any TV audience anywhere. I mean, they will laugh at any joke that is, and by the way, they laughed at that joke, too, that he made about a house N-word. Uh, they will laugh at any joke. They will... Uh, shout down and boo conservatives and think that they're clever and brave in the process. So I find his audience to be detestable. And one of my favorite all-time moments on the show 
was, which I used to watch, but no longer do. I, I just I actually actively refuse to watch the show, but I will occasionally come across clips of it uh, when something like this happens where it becomes newsworthy. Uh, but when Christopher Hitchens, the uh, late uh, and great writer, went on the show and expressed himself to the audience with the use of a single finger, uh, I thought that was one of the most brilliant moments on that show because the audience is so terrible. Uh, you can't use the word deplorable anymore, by the way. Th- that's been uh, th- that's been so associated with Hillary's comment now. And deplorable is a good word. I like the word, but yeah, now it's been reappropriated by the right. You know, it's, a, it's it's one of those things. It's like for a while, fair share. Oh, if you said fair share, Obama made that no longer. You couldn't say to your friend, "Can I have a fair share of of the of the pizza?" It was now you're some kind of a, a, a socialist leftist, um, but or I mean a Democrat rather. Pardon me. Uh, but yeah, but back to Bill Maher and, and the N word and and his usage of the N word. Um, the uh, reality here is that. Uh, oh, and I also should tell you that I have been interviewed to be on that show and have they've been in touch with me many times. and They've never booked me for that show, which I think is very interesting. Uh, and I, I could name some names of other young conservatives that have also never been on that show. And I just think to myself, um, some of the more adept debaters in the conservative uh, media sphere uh, never go on that show for some reason. You get a lot of people who go on who are conservatives who are, you know, well, you know, Bill, I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of hanging out, and I'm a conservative, and I'm a Republican, and, you know. Or, you know, I like write for a publication that nobody reads, and it's really, uh, you know, I'm excited to be here, and you guys can all make fun of me constantly, and I'll just sit here and get shouted down. There's a lot of conservatives like that. Uh, you know, hey, I guess the whole room is just laughing at me and making fun of me, and, you know, I'm a... I'm a congressman that no one's ever heard of, and, you know, I'm a writer for this organization or that organization. I mean, you get a lot of that going on. Or you get conservatives who go on, or, um, pardon me, GOP strategists or Republicans who go on who are just like, I know, I agree, the Republican Party, Donald Trump, it's all disgusting, they're terrible, abandon their principles, but I'm a true Republican, you know, and they love that, too. That's become a, by the way, that's now a job title at some of the networks, uh, Republican that bashes Republicans every day. That's all they do is just bash Republicans. Never have a, never have a stern word for Democrats, leftists, any of that, just bash Republicans. But back to uh, Bill Maher, I, I wanted to say this uh, also, so we're, we're clear, they've reached out to me, we've talked before, uh, and they have never invited me to come on the show. Uh, and I think they're, at this point, and I'll say it, they would say it's because I'm not known enough, but they've had people on the show, many people who are much less far along in their media careers from the right than I am. Uh, I think that they're ducking me, quite honestly. Uh, I think that Bill knows that I would be a lot to handle. And that's because, and they would, like I said, if this ever was posed them, they would say, oh, well, we don't, you know, we, we just, there are other better conservatives that we've had on constantly. And I would just say, well, I mean, anybody on the right who pays attention to media would, would know they're lying. So it's, it's funny. Um, but so I, I also, uh, for full disclosure, I, I find the show's audience uh, detestable and I find the way that they structure the show personally annoying. And I think that they wasted my time and uh, I think they're scared to have me on. So with all that said, Bill and his usage of uh, the N-word, um, it was uh, it was interesting to watch this play out. He clearly thinks that because he always calls Republicans racist that he has a separate set of rules to play by. But, you know, he is a 
white cisgender male. Uh, he, he doesn't understand that identity politics uh, still are the most important in many ways uh, part of the Democrat Party's uh, political machinery. And just because he may be a Democrat in good standing with the identity politics uh, and the enforcers of it in, in the media and, and all these activist groups, doesn't mean he can get away with saying that word. Now they're calling for him to be fired. Uh, I don't think he will be fired. I think we'll see a Kathy Griffin where he'll apologize until the heat blows over a little bit, and then he'll make some noise about the First Amendment or something like that. He'll say that it was just a joke. Uh, there's a clear double standard here. A conservative that said that would never, ever be uh, allowed to keep his job or, or stay uh, on a media role, and it would be a major national news story, whereas this Bill Maher item, it's why I'm talking about it at the very end of the show, is, is relatively minor. Um, but there's another part of this that I think is worth mentioning, and that is that Bill Maher is in good standing with the left, except on the issue of Islam and radical Islam. He does have some degree of courage, and you could say it's, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, but he, he does have some degree of courage on the issue of Islam. And I think that there are plenty within the left who are uh, enjoying this opportunity to punish him for his heresy on Islamophobia, right? He's not somebody who subscribes to the Islamophobia is the main enemy, the main problem after terrorist attacks. And so that makes him, for some leftists, problematic. That makes him somebody that they uh, want to, to punish in some way. Uh, but also that Bill Maher would think he could use the word, uh, the, the N-word, uh, which is so wrought with, well, of course, it has such a long history of, of hate and is tied to uh, the worst kinds of oppression, but he would think that he could get away with that is, is somewhat astonishing. Um, and he will somewhat get away with it, but not entirely. I mean, there's definitely, he has apologized, which is, for him is rare. He did lose his show back in 2002 because he said the 9-11 hijackers weren't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily be described as cowards. Uh, but there's the double standard part of this story. There's the fact that Bill Maher believes that just because you're a Democrat, you can get away with things that and, and usually that's true. Nine times out of 10, that's true. This is the one time out of 10 when even a Democrat, even a leftist who gave a million dollars to Obama uh, can get in trouble. Um, and Bill Maher's usage of the N-word will be another instance of this. But I, I also have to tell you, I disagree um, with stepping back for a moment here, even from the specific Bill Maher incident. I think that uh, you should be able to curse on radio. I don't think the government should have a role, and I wouldn't do it, of course, even if I was allowed to. Um, in fact, when I was on the Blaze radio, because that was internet radio, I could have used any curse words I wanted to, and I never cursed on the show, and I will always have a show that you can listen to that's family-friendly. I, I One of the things that always makes me smile, occasionally I'll get an email from someone that they'll have a photo of the whole family, including, you know, an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old listening to the show, and they like Commie Bear, or they like some of the voices I do. You'll meet Commie Bear, I promise. It'll happen. Uh, so I, I wouldn't use curses, but I, I don't agree with the FCC ruling that, or the FCC making rulings on curse words. But one thing about curse words is that at, at least the rules for those are applicable no matter who you are in the circumstance, right? So Nobody is allowed to go on broadcast radio and just start dropping a lot of four-letter words. That, that, that's not allowable. It doesn't matter who you are, 
Uh, and I know that there are also some rules about whether it's nighttime or daytime. And look, I'm not an FCC lawyer. I'm just saying they don't care who the speaker is. It's there are rules about what you can about what words you can use. And there's even some degree of interpretation that goes into, well, have you gone too far into a discussion that is sexual in nature? Again, you're going to get bored if I talk too much about FCC rules. I'm bored talking to you about FCC rules for about 15 seconds here. But the N-word is a unique case uh, because that's not – if the idea was that it's banned for public usage on uh, radio, TV – uh, I would understand that that falls under there are some words that we just don't use, and we could talk about whether that's a good idea or not. But the N-word is different because it has to do with the speaker, that some can say the word, and it's con- whether on TV or on radio, and it's considered fine, and others cannot, is, I think, philosophically problematic. Not just in the context of you can't use it um, because to use it would be offensive, because I can understand that, I can't even use that word referring to a news story in which someone uses that word. And if I were to do so, not only would I be in trouble with the regulatory agencies that regulate speech, but I would be in trouble for perceived, I I think people would say it's racist for me to even use, to to use the term in the context of somebody else said this. Uh, That to me is is problematic. It is philosophically from a free speech and uh, and ideas perspective. I find that to be, well, it's, it's certainly, in, it's inherently inconsistent, but I, I think it's wrong. Uh, I think that the context in which you use any word, and, and, you know, then you get into, in books like, you know, Huckleberry Finn, should they X out the word when speakers uh, who are in that period who would be using that terminology should they pretend that nobody has ever used these words? Is that you know you can start to see censorship is a slippery slope, uh, and I, I am always very on guard. I am very cautious of accepting that some can use a word and others can't in any circumstances ever. Uh, and the N word is really, I think, one of the only, it's the only word I can think of where that is the case, uh, where there are different standards, not depending on the context or the usage, but on the speaker. Uh, I, I I philosophically disagree with that. Uh, I do not like when words are. First of all, I, I do not like that words are banned in any in general, and and that they could be in fact part of a a criminal inquiry for you know a hate crime, for example, depending on the context. Uh, I, I don't believe that hate speech is a criminal act, uh, but under current laws, you, you could get in trouble for using certain words uh, as hate. You know, they could try to say that it's it's hate speech and you know the FBI would come investigate if this were on campus and and all the rest of it uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of First Amendment uh, considerations free speech considerations I think that are uh, surrounding this discussion of Bill Maher being a jerk look should he have said what he said no was it in poor taste absolutely does he think that he is immune from charges of racism because he was a vocal Obama supporter who is also one of his main jokes is Republicans are racist, right? Republicans are racist. So you you, you saw there the progressive mindset in which uh, th- because they call out racism in others, they are immune from the sin themselves. In fact, white progressives will even believe that because they talk about systemic racism so much, they're not part of the so-called systemic racism, which just means that society is racist in ways that it doesn't even realize 
always and all the time. Um, but banning words and even the repetition of words in context where they're not being used as a term of abuse, they're not being used as an epithet, they're being used in the context of a news story, uh, I find that to be uh, uh, troubling. And I, I think that we should always be cautious before saying some people can say something and other people cannot in any context uh, with both social uh, and perhaps even legal punishments attached to it. Uh, should Bill Maher be fired? Well, he, I don't think he will be fired. Um, uh, should he be fired? I don't like people being fired for one misstep as a general rule at all. Uh, there are some exceptions. Uh, you know, there are extremes for anything. Um, but what he did was was bad and and was indicative of a mindset that he has that the rules don't apply to him. And I think he found out the hard way that, oh, no, in fact, the rules, real and socially imposed, real meaning, you know, by authorities uh, that look at this stuff on TV. And yeah, I know he's on cable, so it doesn't count. But but the rule, it doesn't count in that context. But the rules in general still do apply for certain things. And uh, Bill Maher crossed, even for a progressive leftist, he crossed a red line. But he'll apologize. He'll move on. He won't lose his show. That's my guess. Just like my initial sense of Kathy Griffin was that, yeah, she'd apologize and move on. I didn't know she'd apologize and then would turn around and say she was a victim. But a discussion to continue perhaps another time. All right, team, we're going to hit a quick break. I will be right back. You should always remember, my friends, that the truest tyranny isn't strict laws. The truest tyranny is arbitrary and endless laws, meaning that they just enforce them on a person-by-person, case-by-case basis without any uh, merit or uh, without anything that is based in fact. It's just on the whims of the authorities, right? Then you never know if you're in compliance. You never know if they're going to get you. The PC police, the politically correct police, are a true tyranny. Uh, I have to hat tip Heat Street for this piece. Body positivity is a message that you would think everybody can get behind uh, because it just is an, it's an idea that you should just love your body, right? And uh, Heat Street points out that politi- politically correct feminists are in fact, or some of them, are offended now by body positivity Quote, expecting people to make the switch from self-loathing to total unadulterated self-love was unreasonable. Uh, and, and then it goes on to say that it was unhelpful. Um, so what they're saying here is that by telling people to love themselves because some people can't love themselves, it's being mean to the people who are unable to love their bodies. It, it's hard to keep up with this stuff. But yeah, you'd think that you'd get a fair amount of, of leeway here just suggesting that people should. Because what does love even mean? You, know, you go to that level. What does it mean to love yourself? Uh, but even body positivity now uh, has to be tested and retested for assumptions about, I don't know, the, the patriarchy or, or, or something like that. Uh, but I, look, I know, I know all about body shaming. I used to get told when I would go on CNN, people would tell me that I was, uh, I was fat all the time when I'd come off of air. And, and, you know, that, that was, I'd be like talking about Obamacare. I'd come off air and I'd get some squeeze, you know, lose 20 pounds. Um, side note, I, I, I did, but still I didn't have to, I, I, who cares? Right. I mean, it's like, why are people, 
uh, people are so mean about that stuff. They really are. Yeah, for my years in media, I used to I, I used to get I used to get fat shamed on Twitter by people. It was by CNN watchers mostly. Uh, no surprise there, I guess. Right? They're all so politically correct and so progressive and so wonderful, but they're also like fat shaming a conservative pundit who's talking about policy. Uh, but I digress. Um, team, as always, thank you for joining me here in the Freedom Hut. Please do check out the podcast. You can download it on iTunes. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now. Also, BuckSexton.com for updates throughout the day. We've got an exciting week planned together. Until then, my friends, as always, shields high.